I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week, it's a full house. You've got me, you've got Leo, what up, and you have Chris. Hey! And what could be more appropriate for a guest during the week of Veterans Day and the Marine Corps birthday than some competitive shooter who is also a former Marine. How you doing, Sean? We're welcoming Sean up. Griffith. Hey. <laughs> All right. So our guest this it's week is Sean right Griffith. <laughs> okay. So Sean, why don't you go ahead and take a second and introduce yourself and then we'll get into uh, more things. Say that again, you, you break it up a little bit. Go ahead and take a moment and introduce yourself. Oh, yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, Sean Griffith, uh, prior Marine, as you said, um, and then I shoot competitively. So I live in southeast Georgia in Brunswick. Um, and so I kind of stay in that Area 6 region. So pretty much North Carolina, Alabama, down to Florida, and just hang out, shoot all the matches that I can shoot. Okay. Now, Sean, what we normally do is we start with some questions where we get to know our guest. There are five pretty easy questions. They're basically icebreakers. So the first one is, okay. what is your favorite movie? Ooh, uh, hands down, it's Tombstone. Nice. Nice. Val Kilmer Great. playing uh, Doc Holliday is <laughs> far and away the best movie character ever i'll be yeah, your huckleberry that's, yeah that's pretty exactly. classic there's, there's so much good stuff in that movie yep. <laughs> okay now you didn't i saw you spent what four years in the marine corps did you yep did you do much deployment deploying uh i did one deployment uh in 2010 january to August, I guess. Yeah, August. Uh, to Helmand so, Province, Afghanistan. Okay. So I guess it would depend, but I know anytime I got deployed uh, was always prime reading time. So what's your favorite book? <laughs> uh, I'm not a huge reader. We were, uh, so I was a, with com, a, I was a com Marine uh, with an artillery battalion, so they kept us pretty busy. I don't know that I had a lot of reading time. Maybe I did, and I just didn't use it well. Um, so I've read, I don't know, probably some of the shooting books are, have been the most interesting to me. So I, I teach firearms for a living for DHS right now. Um, so like, you know, the, the talent code, I've read Brian Enos, all of Ben Stager stuff. So I don't know that I really have a favorite, and I'm not that much of a like fiction reader. The talent code was very interesting for me. Uh, just kind of the like how skill is a measured thing it was insightful 
Okay. I'll have to check that out. Talon Code. Yeah, it's by uh, Daniel Coyle. Daniel Coyle. Okay. The next one is a Huggy Special, and that's Who's Your Favorite Superhero? <laughs> oh, I think my son would be angry if I said anyone other than Aquaman. <laughs> Uh, okay and and he's six so he's he kind of runs the show in the uh superhero <laughs> department. okay like, like, current like aquaman, like aquaman not cartoon aquaman correct jason Momoa's okay okay aquaman. yeah he, okay. he loves it. Uh, cartoon aquaman was no i yeah. and i never watched it until the new ones which i like them too so i can get on board with that okay he All right. like being, being able to talk to a fish <laughs> yeah correct <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't who wouldn't want that superpower? I mean, I love seafood. I just <laughs> <laughs> favorite gun and caliber. Oh, that's a that's a tough one. Um, well, I so I shot the Shadow Twos for the past two years uh, in nine millimeter. That's one of my favorites, but I think. Uh, probably an AR-15 and 5.56 is, it's gotta be my all-time favorite. Okay. But I've got a, uh, 14.5 Daniel Defense. That's probably my favorite rifle currently. All right. Pretty popular weapon. I like it. So what was your, yeah. and the, the last question, the fifth question, I try to personalize it. So with your time in the Marines, what was your favorite time? It can be an assignment, a duty station, a deployment, a school. It can be anything. Hmm. And don't say your was, EAS. That doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> that was probably it. Um, no, I had a great time in the Marine Corps. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. In fact, I probably shouldn't have got out. That's a, uh, one of the few regrets I had was, was getting out. Um, but it is life. Uh, I, I, I want to say when I, on deployment, the Hellman was one of my favorites, but I think my favorite, I had a group of friends that, uh, when I was stationed at, uh, Camp Pendleton, I was with the 11th Marine. So 511 is in 43 area. If you're familiar, it's down in uh, like a Valley of Pendleton That's where the 11th Marines are. And, uh, the gym there. So every day when we get off work at the comm shop, we would go back and play video games for like an hour while the pre-workout kicked in. And I mean, this was for three years. Uh, we did this every single day. So we'd go out, we'd drink pre-workout, play like Halo or whatever uh, for like 30 minutes till we were all, you know, take pre-workout, your face is itchy and all that. And then we would drive <laughs> the four minutes to the gym and go work out. That was, that was probably crazy, my favorite time because, you know, yeah. <laughs> a group of Marines, ridiculous things happened every time but yeah that was yeah. That's probably my favorite memory okay all right i'm just so... curious what the pre-workout was oh man it's like uh i kind of treat pre-workout i still do like i do bourbon where i just buy like a different one every time so it, it really ran the i think at the time like it was the no explode no explode was yeah. big i'm trying to remember I don't even. If you haven't had Eno Explode, not a sponsor, you haven't lived. Yeah, that that was an amazing one. Uh, yeah, I don't even remember some of the other ones. But. Yep, good times. 
<clears throat> All right. So when was the first time you ever shot a gun? I, so I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland where it's, uh, you think Maryland, you think Baltimore and D.C. and all that, but the eastern shore is very rural still to this day. Uh, my dad probably handed me a Ruger Mark II when I was seven, eight, told me, handed me a brick of twenty two when they came in the five, 550 rounds in a box and told me to go outside and play. Um, and I grew up <laughs> best doing dad that. ever. I, yeah, he was pretty awesome. Um, it might have been a twenty gauge. I have a bolt action twenty gauge shotgun. It's it's uh, got a two round magazine. Uh, that might have been the first thing I ever shot. Otherwise, it would have been that, that Ruger Mark II. A bolt action yeah. twenty gauge, really? Yep, I still got it. My grandfather had it, and he gave it to me uh, when I was I'm 10, 12 years old, and I still got it. Wow, Who made it's it? interesting. I don't know. I'd have to go look. I don't even think it has any markings on it anymore. It's, it's I know it's got my grandfather's social security number engraved in the wood sock because I guess that was a thing you did uh, back then. I don't there wasn't. Yeah, there was no identity theft back then. Are you still <laughs> collecting his social security checks? <laughs> oh, you know, if I was, people I do watch this. <laughs> I wouldn't say anything about it on here if I was. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, it was one of the two. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that's not too bad. Here, here's a box of twenty-two. Here's a gun. Go outside, have some fun. Yeah, we had this growing up in our backyard. We had this like uh, this tower built. It kind of like a I don't know. It was like ten feet off the ground. It was just a platform that was built off the ground. I don't even know what it was for. But I used to climb up the ladder and I sit up there with that Ruger Mark II, and you know, there'd be like a pine cone over here, and I. I would shoot at it, and there'd be a stick over here, and I would shoot at it. Uh, just kind of did that for hours. <laughs> I mean, that might have been what that was for. That yeah. that very well could have been. You know? Man, sure. I feel like I really – that's, like, pretty cool granddad and, and dad right there. Yeah. Not that I don't <laughs> love mine, obviously, if, but – If I would have had a little bit of direction with it, though, like if they had told me something to shoot or maybe put a target out there, that might have been more beneficial, but – it worked. So I mean, died. No, nope. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Statute of limitations. We should be good. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's going. So what? What made you decide to join the Marines? <laughs> I have an interesting story about this. Well, it's interesting oh. to me at least. Um, so I was living in Florida. My family owns a air conditioning business. Uh, in South Florida and Fort Myers or Cape Coral actually. Um, and I was working, I was 20 at the time I was working for them. Uh, and it gets so hot in the afternoon down there that at the time the business was small enough to where we could only, we would only work like the four hours in the morning before it got real hot, four or five hours. And then by one, two o'clock, it was so hot to get up in the attics that we would stop working for the day. So that's what I was doing kind of part-time work for our family uh, business. And I remember sitting at a table, I was living with my dad, he lived down there at the time, and I was sitting at a table and I was like, man, I see these people like sitting around doing nothing with their lives. And like, I couldn't imagine uh, being that person. And as I said that, I looked down at the table and I, I used to smoke uh, cigarettes and I had a monster 
which was like my fourth for the day. It's like two in the afternoon, 20 years old. I had a pack of cigarettes with one lit in my mouth and I kind of had an epiphany. I was like, this is, uh, I'm one of the people that are doing nothing with their lives. So the next day, my uncle pulled up to pick me up in the company van. I got in the van. I said, hey, when we're done today, I need to swing by the recruiter's office. He was like, what, really? I was like, yeah, uh, the Marine Corps recruiter. Because if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it big. Um, so I like it. That day after work, we went by the, the recruiter's office. And I sat down with the recruiter. And I remember he pulled out those 11 yellow tiles. He's like, you know, which one means the most to you? And they say, like, travel, education. Uh, I forget what all 11 they say. And they're like, pick the three that mean the most to you. And then they explain how you get whatever three you pick. Like, join the Marine Corps, right? <laughs> I remember him putting them in front of me and I was like, man, I, I don't need those. I'm ready to sign a contract today. Like I'm, I've made my decision. You don't have to talk me into it. So I ended up signing a security forces contract right there that day. Um, I, it wasn't long. It was maybe a month later. I shipped out the MEPS. And when I got there, I couldn't, I have tattoos outside my sleeve line and it was uh, for presidential security forces. So the gunny and MEPS said, uh, I don't know who your recruiter was, but you can't have this MOS with tattoos outside your sleeve line. I said, all right. So I said, you have a couple options. You can ship, uh, you can call your recruiter and try and get your MOS change, which I tried to do. Nothing I wanted was available at the time. Uh, and then he said, or you can ship open contract. So that's what I ended up doing. I shipped open contract. I was already three hours away from home and I was committed to going to Paris Island that weekend or whatever day of the week it was. So I just shipped open a contract. But it was, I mean, it was a, it was a short, short time frame. And you got communications out of it. Lucky enough, okay. there was there's probably nine or ten dudes in my platoon that were open contract, and I think all of them got supplier admin aside from me, which I I would I made. So out your ASVAB was pretty good then. I I had a decent ASVAB. Turns out I could do things sometimes. <laughs> Couldn't read a lot, but it's not. Yeah. Some things, right? I, I still joined the Marine Corps, so you know. Yeah. But like you said, you're going to do it big. Yeah. So absolutely. All right. So you spent four years in, um, I noticed, uh, on your website, your bio, you said that you started your shooting career in the Marine Corps. What, what are you referencing there? I guess, uh, really like professional training where somebody's actually sitting down with me like, Hey, and with that was the rifle. Um, like this is how actually how you do these things instead of, you know, my dad taught me the basics, right? This is how you align sights and, you know, press the trigger, but nothing really formal. Uh, so when I got in the Marine Corps, you know, obviously they teach you in basic how to shoot. And then as I went through, uh, I think I was three years in, I qualified for the first time with the Beretta. Uh, and really starting to get some professional training on how to shoot anything. Um, was that, that was the first experience for me. You know, I got to, you, you just made me have a flashback. Um, cause I, I went into boot camp in 1985 and we had a, um, Oh, inter-service transfer of a guy from the army. I was 18. He was probably 26, 27, somewhere in there. And he kept calling it, <laughs> uh, basic or training, whatever it was. And they were like, if you, Finally, one night, the drill instructor had had enough. And he's like, if you say that one more time, I'm going to beat your ass. And, <laughs> and he never said it again. I was like, all right, we're yeah, getting, things are getting crazy. serious now. 
they don't play around, man. The, the you know words mean something, and yeah, they use the wrong one in the wrong context. But they don't let it, you know nothing. Nothing slips off, right? Yeah. So did did you qualify expert all four years? I did. Yep. With a rifle, I don't remember what I, I think I qualified expert with pistol, but I only qualified the pistol once. Uh, and it just happened to be, I think we had extra time on the range day. Uh, so they said anybody who wants to qualify with the M9 can go over here. I was going to, I like cheap stuff. So I went over there and qualified with it. I think I qualified expert with it. I'd have to go probably look at my badges somewhere. <laughs> look, looks sure like a pine cone. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but expert with a rifle. Okay. Uh, which All is right. funny now because I'm a, I, uh, like I said, I, I train law enforcement for DHS right now. And, you know, some of these guys, they're shooting rifles out to 50 yards at our facility, and it's like, man, we didn't, we didn't start shooting the rifle till at, you know, at 200 is where the Marine Corps call starts. Yeah, at 50 yards is, it's crazy. It's funny. I almost feel like they should have to do a blindfolded, at 50 yards. <laughs> I think you could. I'm pretty sure. This this is how this is how long ago was that I was in Marine Corps boot camp. Our platoon was the first one to use. They literally pulled them out of the plastic. We used M16A2s. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that uh, because we got M16A2s, and I think, I believe, I was one of the last. I went into 2008. Um, I believe I was one of the last platoons to, to be issued A2s at Paris Island. And I, would, I think I was one of the last ones. I have to go back and look when they switched to the ACOG at, in boot camp. I think I was one of the last ones to qualify on iron sights in boot camp. Wow. I, I know they don't do that anymore. You right. probably did it on Dave's rifle. It could have. Yeah. Might have had my social <laughs> security <laughs> number engraved <laughs> on the stock. <laughs> yeah, it was quite worn, so it, it might have been. I don't know. It was yeah. pound side dumbass. So. <laughs> yep. I believe that was mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So you were. So I'm assuming then you were on the East Coast, so you went to Paris Island. Yep. And then they sent you to Pendleton? Uh, so I went to Paris Island for boot camp. I went to SOI in North Carolina. And then I went to Com School, 29 Palms, uh, which at the time, Com School was pretty backed up. So we, I, I spent, I can't even remember how many months in a, Marines awaiting training platoon, just PTing and cleaning and hanging out for probably two, three months uh, before I even started training. And then I finally got in comm school. And then after, out of comm school, I went to 20 or Camp Pendleton. That, that two or three months been a long, should it probably was a long two or three months. I can it, only it imagine all I'm the nonsense. Just, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. It, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, I think. Uh, but. I can't, I'm not a person who can just sit here and just hang out for all day. And that's kind of what we were doing. We'd PT early in the morning and then it was just kind of like waiting for, you know, if somebody needed something done, we would go do it. But other than yeah, that, busy work. Yeah. Yep. And it was miserable. Yep. That said, Ugh. Hey, go see that, that pile of crates, move that pile of crates over there. And then the next day it's like, yep. Hey, I'm gonna need you to move them back. Yep. Yeah. It now was... you got to move them back because you got to paint the rocks underneath them. <laughs> then you got to move them back over to where they, you had moved them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, I had never seen, I had never seen mountains before. So when I got to come school, it was dark. And when we were standing in line to, uh, 
to check in and the, the sun came up as we were standing in line and i remember looking above the barracks and there was mountains there i was like oh that's that's pretty cool that's what they look like <laughs> little did i know that when i went into this uh training platoon or waiting platoon they would be like hey you see that mountain over there I'd be like yeah it's really cool they'd be like hey go touch it oh <laughs> so yeah okay I, I think i'd be taking a picture putting it on my wall and be touching it <laughs> I don't think that would have worked. I don't think it would either. Try though. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. So you you got out in 2012 and went directly into law enforcement. Yeah, there was a. So I was applying right before I got out. I was applying to every law enforcement agency in and around Maryland because uh, that's where I'm from. That's where I was going back to, and I applied. I got hired. I started working for a police department up there in, I got out in May, I think September, October, I started with police. Um, so it wasn't long until I was into law enforcement. Okay. Um, and then it, how long from the time you got on, did you start then training others in marksmanship? So... I got on and started with the police in 2012, uh, 2015, probably. Um, okay. 2015, I went to our training unit and then started teaching firearms. In between there, I started competing. Uh, 2014, I started shooting IDPA, and then uh, I developed relatively quickly, in, at least in IDPA, uh, and then applied to our training unit, and they picked me up from there. Okay. That actually transitions perfectly into the next section, which is I saw that uh, you were shooting IDPA. Now, how did you get into IDPA? What what made you start doing that? So uh, I was hanging out with a, a couple of buddies of mine in Maryland one day, just a weekend hanging out, and we were shooting um, just rifles and pistols, just, not, just kind of planking around. And one of them was like, hey, man, it'd be really cool if we set up like a spot here and you shot some stuff and then you like ran over there and shot some stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's try it. Uh, you know, obviously this time I had some training from the Marine Corps, so I knew how to do a little bit of stuff. So we did it and it turned out it was really fun. So then, you know, the wheels started turning. I was like, we should like look up like shooting competitions. Like we, you know, who knows? There's got to be something, right? Because uh, I'd seen videos of people competing and stuff like that. Um, so uh, like all ideas between friends, you talk about it everybody's super excited and then 10 minutes later after you all leave it just dies and that's what happened uh with everyone except me so i went on i waited probably two or three weeks texting i'm like hey let's go do this and nobody really wanted to so i went on to google myself and i typed in shooting competition near my zip code and hit enter and there was a club in bridgeville delaware that shot idpa which was 20 minutes from my house and they ran a match every other saturday and every wednesday uh, oh wow! At the time, I was working night shift for our police department, so I would get off at six. I'd be home by seven. If I drove straight to Bridgeville, I could be there by seven thirty, and then just show up for the match and shoot it. So that's what I started doing. I started showing up every Wednesday and shooting IDPA. Now, what were you what were you shooting in IDPA? Meaning, what gun were you using? Uh, I started with a Glock seventeen. Um, I shot that for probably a couple months until. So I don't remember who, but somebody let me shoot their Glock 34 on a stage. Um, and 
I liked it, so I went and bought one of those, and then I shot a Glock 34 for 2014 to 2017 exclusively. Okay. So I I know that you were the 2018 stock service pistol champion in IDPA, correct? Yep. yep. So what what did you use then if you weren't using your Glock 34? Oh, I guess still 2018, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I did. <laughs> okay. It was my Glock 34. Because <laughs> I've Dave, had... Dave, math is hard. Man, will, will you sell me 34? I'm like, yeah, no, I won't, because it's... I won a national championship, but then I'll never sell it. It's gonna. I'm yeah, gonna you got to keep it. But uh, yep. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I, well, I started shooting USPSA in 2017, I think. Uh, but I shot that 34 in USPSA for a year before I switched to the Shadow too. So that makes sense. Oh, okay. Now, did shooting USPSA help you win the national championship in IDPA? Um, no, I, I shot, so I moved from, in 2017, I moved from Maryland to Georgia. I took a detail down to the federal law enforcement training center down here in Brunswick. That's where I work now. Um, when I did that, I came down here and found IDPA club, uh, and still only shot IDPA up until, see, nationals was what, September of 2018, I think. So I shot IDPA only until early September, or I mean, early 2018. And then I started kind of dabbling in USPSA. I think I shot a couple matches. Um, okay. But at the time, I was trying to win nationals, so I really focused on just IDPA. I didn't really mess with USPSA too much until after uh, nationals. And then I switched over exclusively to pretty much exclusively to USPSA. Okay. I didn't shoot a whole yeah. lot of it before nationals. No. Okay. <clears throat> For everybody listening, what is the stock service pistol division in IDPA? Um, it's pretty much similar to production in USPSA. It's it's a, I guess a production gun. I don't know the number they have to meet to, to sell. I don't know if like a you know if they have to sell okay. ten thousand to be considered legal, but it, it's the stock ish version. So you, I think at the time you could change external parts, but you couldn't change internal parts. I could be wrong on that. Um, but I, I ran stock okay. Glock 34. I put the, the Vogel trigger in it, which is pretty much just a polished stock trigger. And then I put, I think it's got a minus connector. And then I had the Dawson, like a flat rear, blacked out rear sight and a red fiber front. and Everything else was stock. Okay. So what then caused you to transition? So you were dabbling in um, USPSA. You went and won the 2018 IDPA championship in SSP. So what made you to, what made you to decide to switch over to USPSA exclusively after that? Had you felt like you completed ever what you were aiming to do? No, uh, this might get a little controversial. So uh -oh. I, uh, <laughs> I was, so after nationals, I was kind of shooting both, um, pretty much 50, 50, here, down in Maryland, there was no USPSA clubs at the time that were really near me. Um, down here, it was the opposite. There was not really any IDPA clubs that were that are near me here. Um, mm. But there's a bunch of USPSA clubs here. So that's kind of, I started to make a switch and we're, we're shooting both. So I won nationals and I still kind of shot both. Um, and then came around the 2019 World Shoot for IDPA. 
which I applied for and got uh, waitlisted, I think, for the world shoot. So when I got waitlisted for the world shoot, I decided I was done with IDPA uh, and switched over exclusively to USPSA. Okay. Now, I want to before we get too hot and heavy into more USPSA stuff. So you were a Maryland law enforcement officer, and you how you'll have to explain this because I this I have no idea. I don't know how it works. But somehow you got detailed, if that's what you want to call it. I'm not sure <laughs> the actual term, but from yep. Maryland to Fletzy. Correct? correct? Yeah, they So uh, how? Yep. So they, with the police up there, we have a so Fletzy runs off partner organizations. It's it's federal law enforcement and part of the deal is that some most agencies send uh, people down on three to five year details down here to instruct here as part to, you know, help out. Um, most agencies do that. So I was, a spot came up for a detailed instructor uh, from the agency I was with. So I put in for it and ended up getting it. And uh, 2017, I moved, I came down here on that three to five year detail. And Very nice. 20, 2020, that detail. So I wasn't, I was, Two, two years and some change into that detail. Um, my wife and I knew we weren't going back to Maryland, uh, which I, I like Maryland, but I like it here better. Uh, so we decided to stay. So I jumped over to uh, DHS to Flessy full time. Okay. That must have been a, a pretty nice deal when that popped up and able to swap switch over like That's that. That's cool. It's fun, yeah. Yeah, it, it happens quite a bit. Right. And I mean, let's be honest, not trying to be controversial or cause issues, but I mean, the rules for shooting down there are a little bit better than the ones up in Maryland. So hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, so you, that have, makes sense. you know, it's, we're talking uh, about the state, not like the law enforcement stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't know if I'd be saying that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. much, much okay. more gun-friendly down here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So okay. That's, that's nice. And then it, it's cool because the, the I guess, community down here, not that it isn't big up there, but we get we can shoot year-round, right? It's never really that cold to where we have a real off-season down here. So because you can shoot year-round, the, the the talent here is way higher. You know, Area 6 is you know, this area, and I think like the Texas – that whole region are pretty hot with, with talent. You know, it's, it's a good area to shoot in. Uh, if, if you have goals of progressing to high levels. It helps okay. not having to shoot in the snow. Just saying. <laughs> it's the only time it helps to be fat. Cause you're like, eh, I'm still pretty warm. No, I'm very much, you know, if it's drizzling, I'll go out. But aside from that, I'm, I'm pretty, these days I'm a fair weather shooter. It's nasty. I'm not going. I don't blame you. All right. So, so now we'll, we'll make the switch over. So now you've, now you're living in Georgia. You've decided to switch over completely to USPSA. I believe you started in production, correct? Yep. Okay. So you were using a Glock initially and then switched over to CZ. 
Yep, I shot that Glock 34, the same one I shot 90PA for about a year um, in in production division before I ever even considered switching to anything else. I had a, a buddy of mine, a guy I trained with all the time, shoots Shadow 2s, and he, he has since I met him. So he was constantly like, hey, you should try this out. Hey, you should try this out. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not even going down that road. Uh, turns out I went down that road, but it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I shot the 34 for about a year. Um, Okay, so so he's the one who talked you into shooting the, or I'm sure trying his CZ, his Shadow Two, and then you ended up getting. Oh, looks like I need to get his Shadow Two. Yeah, I liked it. So, I, I I had gotten bored, I guess, kind of shooting the Glock, uh, which I'm going through something similar now. We just kind of lose motivation because it's not, you know, it's nothing new. Uh, and the Marine Corps mentality, I man, I'm like a goldfish, right? I see some shiny and I want to try it out, but. uh <laughs> So I held his shot. I was like, this is pretty cool. I could have some of this. So a buddy of ours was actually selling a used one. So I bought it. And uh, mm. I remember our, my first match with it. I was like, man, this is like, it's not, it's not any real different performance wise, but it is more fun at, at the time. Uh, so I, I decided to buy it to shoot it for a while. And it turns out I shot it till through nationals this year. Oh, okay. It sounds like you're switching again. Yeah, I've got a Glock 17. I've got set up for carry optics. Um, so I'm going to shoot it this year just again because with the Shadow 2, I've been shooting it for two years now. And it's, you know, other people can stay motivated to do that stuff. I find myself with with nothing new to, to kind of play with. I, I, I go through the motions of dry fire, but I don't really pay attention, um, which okay. isn't helpful for anything. So right. I, I switched to the Glock. And it's done what I've hoped, hoped it would do for now. It's a. Uh, motivated me to you know because you got to learn it again um and it's, it's something new i also every day at work you know i handle a glock five days a week so that, that doesn't hurt either okay so how long did it take you when you made the switch over to uspsa to make gm in production mm, i think it was right around a year so I, I shot a classifier, and funny enough, I shot a classifier match. It was my first match I ever shot uh, here in Brunswick, and I didn't know it was a classifier match. So I went and shot this classifier match, uh, and I thought that's what USPSA was. And it was a lot of, you know, this was before they started coming out with the new ones where there's a little bit of movement. So there was really no movement or anything. I was like, this isn't as much fun as you guys said it would be. Um, <laughs> and then I found out it was a classifier match. I've so been lied to. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I don't understand. This is but, egregious. Uh, yeah, so I, I went straight into A class. Um, it was it wasn't very long after that. Four or five months, I, went, I jumped to M, and then from there, it probably was another eight months ish until I got GM. Yeah, that that's a little misleading though. Straight into A when you were the 2018 IDP national champion. So it's not it like is. you didn't have a little shooting under your belt. <laughs> Correct, and that's, everybody's like, "Oh, you went straight to A." I'm like, "Well, yeah, but hear me out." And then you know, there's I'm, a backstory here. Do backstory. anything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just standing there. Yeah, yeah. I just a dude off the street just came out with a borrowed gun. I did it with a high point. Leave me alone. <laughs> offset, offset sights. I could. I don't know how it happened. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fine. But, uh, All right, yeah. so. <laughs> Now, did you ever shoot production at nationals, USPSA nationals? Yep. My first nationals, I shot production. 
Uh, I guess that would have been 20, 2019. I think I shot 2019 low cut nationals in production um, down at Frostburg. Okay. How did that turn out? How'd you do? It was good. I was still pretty new. I mean, I, I had gotten GM, but I didn't know the sport at all, right? Because, you know, even now, I'm still learning new stuff. I see people do stuff. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. I've never seen that before. But at the time, I was really, I mean, I was a year into it. I, I, I didn't know a whole lot of anything. So I, I went into there, I think, with delusions of grandeur and came out <laughs> knowing exactly where I stood. Um, I think I a little, a little humble there. Yeah, 20. That's not bad. Or something like that. No, it wasn't bad. I was happy with it. Um, I had some stages where, you know, you come off stage and you're like, man, I really wish I could do that one again. Uh, but it was a good learning experience for me to, to compete at a national level match like that um, and see some of, the, some of the guys. I got to watch Ben shoot a stage, which was pretty cool. It was, it was enlightening for me because I was like, oh, he's, he's not really doing anything crazy. He's just not making any mistakes. So that was, you know, you learn those kind of lessons where I don't have to be the fastest dude. I don't have to win every stage. I just have to make less mistakes than everyone else. Right. He just does it quick. Yeah. Yep. Um, so what made you, was it the whole get bored, want to tinker around with stuff that made you switch to carry optics? No. So I was, I wanted to switch to carry optics prior to that nationals um but i had been training for half the year in production so i was going to stick that out shoot nationals and then this, i remember the day i got back from nationals i sent the slide off for the shadow two to primary machine to mill out the dot um i think i was i, I saw the pace that carry optics was shooting at uh, and for the way i shoot i guess my style i think it fits me better than production ever did i just i like i like to shoot on the move i like to flow through positions and that kind of stuff. And it, not that it can't be done with production, but with carry optics, it, it makes sense a lot more. Um, you, you prefer so two mags over five. Me. I get it. Correct. I, well, you know, it's interesting. I really thought that the capacity was going to be the big selling factor for me. Like I was like, I don't care if it's iron sights or dot. I just want to not have to reload every time I move. It turns out the dot, uh, cause prior to that, I never shot a dot or a pistol with a dot. And uh, I learned a lot when I started competing with the dot. I was like, man, I can do everything just way faster. It's crazy. It, now we're okay. Well, that begs the question: When you first made the transition, how quickly were you acquiring the dot versus acquiring your front sight post in production? <laughs> so it was it was pretty immediate for me, um, and I think a lot of that well is attributed to uh when i first started competing in idpa i, I dry fired a lot um at, as i still do but a big focus for me was i used to close my eyes draw the gun and then open them and i didn't care what the sights were aligned to but i wanted the sights to be aligned in front of me with each other so just developing the kind of index to where when i when i put the gun out there i don't have to make any kind of corrections and i think since i did that so early on and had such a focus on that when i switched to the dot I didn't have all the issues that I think a lot of people do where when you present a gun with iron sights, if the sights, you know, if the front sights off to the left, a little bit high, a little bit low, we can see that because we can reference it off the rear sight, right? So I can correct it. Right. And after hundreds and hundreds, thousands of reps, you, that happens subconsciously. So you don't even realize you're doing it. But then when you pick up the red dot gun where you have nothing to reference the red dot off of because it's a singular focus, you have nothing to reference off of. So if you present the gun the same way and it's a little bit left, a little bit high, a little bit right, 
you don't have a dot in the window and then you get the famous like oh where is it <laughs> yeah um which i never i never had because i put so much time early on and and i don't i i must have read something or, or watched a youtube video or something but i knew that was important i knew getting the gun in front of my eye with the sights aligned to each other was important early and that i think set me up for success when i switched to the red dot i know when i first switched to the red dot i was asking people who other people shooting carry optics i'm like how are you picking up your dot so fast? You know, I mean, there's no, the easy answer is like you're saying, I mean, it's just a lot of dry firing and presentation, you know, to, to build that yep. muscle memory, and but good Lord. I think, yeah, it's, it's and everybody's got varying de degrees of, of, uh, you know, trying to figure all of this out. But I think, uh, I'm, I'm pretty analytical, but in nature. So like when I was dry firing it, even early on, I knew I needed to be consciously focused on different things. So if I presented the gun out and the sight was a little bit to the left, I would go through like, hey, how was that happening? Or why is that happening? Right? Or, you know, the grip pressure wasn't there, or whatever the reason, and then kind of make an effort to fix it right then and there. Um, and that just kind of happened organically, I guess, um, which I think, you know, set it up for success as well. Okay. Now, did you have to, uh, I imagine... The dot doesn't sit where the normal front sight would sit. It's a it's typically higher. It's so did you a little bit right? So did you did you just is that the only adjustment you had to make then was just putting the dot where you wanted it on the target because you already had it in your vision? Um no. So when I when I present the gun from holster to where you want to present it, you know, kind of draw that imaginary line of 45 degrees. The gun travels in a straight line from point to point B, right? Um, but when I do that, I was very conscious of having the gun level both or vertically and horizontally. So if the gun right. presents level, I just keep it raising until I see the, the either the iron sights come up or the red dot come up into the vision. Either way, it doesn't matter. It just matters how much I'm moving the gun. Um, so I didn't really have to make any any adjustments when I, I presented the gun out the first time and the dot was in the window. I was like, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know what the big deal is. Uh, and now after doing this for a little bit, I, I get the big deal. It, you know, for some people struggle with it, but, uh, I didn't. Yeah. Apparently you, you practiced the right thing from the very beginning. Good for you. Yeah. And that, that was out of sheer luck. I think that wasn't my designer. Thing. Right. But good for you. I mean, it just shows that your training from the very beginning was was on, was spot on. Now, are you seeing um, down in Georgia on the law, law enforcement side, are you seeing a growth in optics on law enforcement pistols? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's I, I have a feeling, uh, you know, law enforcement is always behind the civilian market, but I think five, ten years from now, it'll be similar to where if you see an officer with a rifle without a red dot on it, that would be weird to see these days. I think in five to 10 years, it'll be the same thing with handguns where it'll be weird to see, you know, the agencies out there still carrying iron sided guns, but a lot of them mostly state and local right now are going to red dot optics federally. Uh, it's, it's slowly progressing. There are agencies that are switching to it. Um, the majority are still on irons though. A lot of them are still in like a teeny kind of phase trying to figure out which dot to go with. You know, and with law enforcement, it's always financial. Does it make sense for us to put in essentially the cost of another gun for every officer in the red dot and the milling or a new slide, or whatever? Um, and and every agency has to make that 
you know, choice, but it's going that direction for sure. Well, are you, while we'll keep on optics for a moment, then are you seeing dots in a uh, reasonable price range that are durable enough for law enforcement officers? It, I guess it really depends on your definition of reasonable as far as price goes. Um, I know a lot of them are looking at, you know, RMRs are kind of the, the king still for at least LE stuff. Right. Um, a lot of them are going to the SROs, which in my opinion uh, is is the best thought out there right now. Um, which one? Uh, the Trichicon SRO. Okay. Yeah, you kind of broke up a little bit. I wanted to make sure you said SRO. Yep, the SRO. You got a lot of agencies, uh, especially state and local, are one of those. Um, the Delta points are pretty popular right now, too, with, with LE. Uh, and then you have an interesting thing with Holosun because, you know, people are, are buying them now. Uh, I don't know that they're really tested enough to, to see. That, that's what I'll be shooting this year is a Holosun 509 on, on this lock. Uh, so by the end of the year, I'll have 50, 60,000 rounds through it. I'll be able to tell you if, <laughs> if this one held up. Uh, or okay. Not. But uh, I think if, if this proves to be good, it's a, it's a closed emitter for – 300 bucks i think they're going somewhere around there right now um that's a, a good that's a good deal if it's durable enough right well and that's that's what i i have an sro on my canic which i shoot in carry optics and um yep. I, I love it but at the same time i've seen on the trigicon website that it's not meant for anything but basically competition because <laughs> they didn't make it for durability in law enforcement or military applications. Yep. Yeah. And that's, uh, there's, there's some companies out there when they, when it first came out, they, they pushed that real hard that, it, you know, Trigicon says it's not intended for duty carry. It's not intended for duty carry. I think it's even written on the package or at least it was. Uh, right. And I think a lot of that is a liability thing for Trigicon. Now, I don't know, obviously, but, uh, because they didn't design it specifically for LE type stuff. Now the only, as far as fragility, the only downfall I've seen is if, if you turn it and drop it on the dock from shoulder height onto concrete, like, yeah, it's probably going to break. Um, but the chances of that happening versus the the durability of it actually being shot and the usefulness of the dots or the, the window size, I think far exceeds the negative. Um, I've got two of them. Okay. That I, that's why I ran on my Shadow 2s. I had one failed about 50,000 rounds. I sent it back to Trigicon. I had it back in a week or yeah, about a week, maybe, maybe a week and a half. Um, and it's been good since. And I've got another one with, I don't know, 30, 40,000 rounds on it. That's, that hasn't failed yet. So as far as, you know, taking the G force and slide run back and forth, the SRO is, is proven in my opinion, uh, that it could do that. You just can't get have a drop in your gun concrete. Right. Yeah. I'm yep. sure there's a lot of red dots that if you did that, they would break. So. Yeah, and that's you know that's why the RMR is standard because it's got that curved top piece with the with the points on it. So if you drop it, it's not going to break. Um, right. But it's got a lot of downfalls too. The biggest one being for a large agency, the batteries underneath. So if you do in-service officers and bring twenty-five of them out at a time to qualify, and they want to replace their batteries, well, you got to take them all off, replace the battery, put them back on, then re-zero the guns, and it becomes a logistical kind of nightmare for agencies. Uh, to deal with that at a large capacity. If you have four dudes in the sheriff's department, it's not a big deal. But when you have, you know, New York police department has what thirty some thousand officers, that would it would be an issue for sure. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that would be a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, interesting because you're talking about the, you know, the cost of the of basically a new gun. Like, I wonder if it's competition that's driving companies like Glock to do their MOS, like their their modular optic system that it makes it optic ready, or like any of those other firearms companies that are producing optic ready firearms, or if that's is that law enforcement that's driving that, or is that competition that's driving that, and it just happens to translate to law enforcement? Yeah, I, I would doubt it's uh, law enforcement driving that. I, I would imagine, again, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine the civilian market, just regular people are the biggest market out there. Um, and if they want red dots, that's, that's who they're going to cater to, and, and law enforcement and competition gets a byproduct of it. Because uh, competition figures the USPSA has – 30,000 members ish uh, out of what percentage of those are actually active 10,000 right. maybe maybe right so that that market there's hardly any real money there i would imagine right and and i remember ones that kim saying on a podcast sometime saying that he has two sros hundred twenty thousand rounds on both of them and they're still going strong yeah so i know his round counts way up there and, and he says the same thing as durability wise i know he's had a lot of delta points that have, he's talked about going down um and other ones I've, I've seen a lot of different dots go down i have the only sro i've seen go down was mine uh of course it happened mid-stage at a local match so oh, wow. why wouldn't it happen there <laughs> right <laughs> and now and that was after 50 50 to 60 000 pounds on it, so leo chris do you guys are Remember when we had Jason Bradley on, I know he was using Delta point pros. Wasn't his going down like every five to 10,000 rounds. He was having, he had sent it back like three times. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, actually kind of in interested in what uh, Sean's going to find out from the hollow sun because I just, me too. Also, uh, <laughs> I got the 507 on my can. Okay. So uh, it's going to be interesting I don't I don't put as many rounds through as you do, so it'd be interesting to hear what what the outcome will be with you putting as many rounds through it. So, yeah, it, I'm I'm curious myself. I had a uh, one of the guys in our squad um, had a five and nine on a Walther in the, at nationals this year, and the back glass fell out. But oh, the, the back glass, <laughs> uh, I guess. It, it's only there to, to enclose the emitter, right? So it still had a dot projected. It could still shoot it. It just no longer, it essentially was just another open emitter dot. Um, oh, okay. So I don't, I don't know that I would consider that a true failure. I mean, it's not good, but dots still work. It's still usable. Uh, it's like Princess Bride. He's only mostly dead. Like, it's yeah, fine. It's, it's, probably okay. <laughs> uh, it's fine. I wouldn't, that, I'm Which, not going to write home about that. Well, I read online with the with the five hundred nine that that back glass I guess is a known issue falling it's out. It's extra. So when I when mine falls out, I'll shoot you all a message and be like, "Hey." <laughs> it's like when IKEA yeah. puts those extra like little dongles in the thing. It's yeah. you know, yeah, you lose it in shipping. Here's extra glue and another piece of glass. I'll yeah, just go back <laughs> yeah. In there, myself. there you go. Real persnickety. Oh, the glass fell <laughs> out. Yeah, it still works. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Just go shoot. <laughs> Bunch of wow. So what size dot are you using in your optic? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, the SROs, I was using the fives. Um, okay. I think 
I don't think there's options in the five and nine. I think it's a three point two five. Again, how, I could be wrong on that though. So how do you like the the size of the three two five compared to the five? When I had so shooting the five, I've shot the the two point five zero alongside of the five, and I never really noticed a difference size wise as far as performance. Right, you run drills with you know standard drills with times. That um, is not what she said. For me. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> anyway. I was thinking it. Uh, uh, I don't even remember what I was talking about now. <laughs> the, uh, size matters. <laughs> Bigger's better. I, it's the biggest one I have. Huge. Um, the, the brightness has always been the bigger factor for me. Uh, so, right. And with this, the three point two five. You know, on those bright sunny days, I could if I turned it all the way up, I don't have any issues with it. With the five MOA SRO, I, you know, I would I would usually run it a couple clicks down from full brightness. Oh, well, he pulled a huggy. He just decided to leave. <laughs> there he is. He's back. There we go. Okay. So to you, the brightness makes uh, a bigger difference. I agree. It definitely makes a, a difference. Um, so uh, while you're saying that, I want to interject. Do, what zone at CMP Nationals did you start in? Uh, what zone three, the one with all the one-handed shooting up, up the hill up top. So you started up there at nationals. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's where I started. So then you probably didn't have any issues with the direction of the sun while you shot. No, nationals. We didn't have any issues. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even call it an issue, but day three, we shot in the afternoon day three in our last couple stages, the sun was going down over the berms. So with the SRO, it, it's pretty, uh, known at this point that if you look directly into the sun it'll project another dot as you're looking through it um for me I know, and i can't speak for everybody but when i do see that second dot and i don't know if you've experienced this shooting SROs, but when i see that other one it, it's different enough that i know that's not it uh so that i've never found that to be an issue uh, i know there's some other shooters out there that have talked about it pretty extensively as as being a concern um and I, I did see some guys there that day putting – they take pacers and put them over the lens, uh, similar, right, to taping up right. the lens. If you right. do that, it takes it, it, takes it away completely. Uh, but, no, I didn't – aside from that, way, way less issues than I've seen at Frostproof. So that was good. Yeah, Frostproof is the only place I – well, that's not true. I shoot here in Fredericksburg on occasion in Virginia, and um, at first I was using a Vortex – Yep. And I, I actually called them because I bought the Canic SFX that came with a Vortex dot on it. And twice in the matter of two, two maybe three months, um, there is a certain bay that I was shooting on. Same bay, both times, almost the exact same time of the day. And when I turned a certain way to engage a target, it was literally like a red curtain. The entire window <laughs> was a red curtain. Like I couldn't see a dot and I couldn't see huh. through it. I'm like, uh, so I just blindly fired, you know, a few shots and moved on. Perfect. And they were like, they had never heard of it. And I'm like, okay, well that I ended up going to an RMR, but I did the dual, um, uh, illumination. So there's no battery. 
The only thing I've got that on my carry, but I, I'm not a fan of it in competition just because the window is so small. Yep, and that's uh, that's another downside of the RMR. It has the smallest window by far out of all the big the big options out there. I have not heard about the the Vortex dot issue. I haven't been around many shooters using the Vortex, but I've never heard that before, so I haven't seen it. That's interesting, though. Yeah, that hey, I called them up. I'm like, hey, have you ever heard of this? And they're like, nope, never heard of it. I'm like, well, I'm like, first time I was like, okay, that's weird. Second time I'm like, this is not a coincidence. This is like, this is a legit a issue now. Right, now? <laughs> right? Did my eyeball explode? And all I'm seeing is blood. I mean, what's the yeah, problem? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, it was crazy. Insane. That was at that point. I was like, I got to change. And I mean, I knew the RMR was, you know, the the gold standard for ruggedness, durability all of that, but I didn't want to deal with a battery. So I'm like, I, I'm going to do the dual illumination job. Yep. So, and I found out there's one other downside to that dot. Um, did you, sh have you shot area eight before? No, I have not. I, I want to get up there and shoot that this year. Okay. So At, well, this year, now 2022, actually, it's going to be up in Pennsylvania, but, um, the last two years it's been at Shadowhawk defense and they have kind of like a pavilion stage where you're underneath a building. And what I have yeah. found is the problem is they'll have targets in the sun, but you're under the building. So your dot <laughs> gets dimmed down and it takes an extra, probably good solid second or a second and a quarter to find the dot on that bright target because it's so dimmed yeah. down and because I, I use a green dot not a red dot so i found that was a little uh interesting the first time i was like oh my i'm like i can't find my dot where's my dot so yeah from inside looking out the uh yeah as you step down from the ambient light but then outside you know, it's right yeah exactly yep so that was interesting um so how long so you were already a GM in production. You switch over to carry optics. How long did it take you to make GM in carry optics? Uh, it wasn't a super long time, six, eight months, something like that. I was a GM before the next nationals. Uh, okay. But with, like I said, you know, it, right now it's an interesting time. And at the time it was because the highest factors on all the classifiers are the same for carry optics as they are for production. So I have <clears throat> on classifiers that production, you have a choice but to do a reload. Now I don't have to do that. And I'm shooting a red dot, which makes me significantly faster in the first place. Making GM with carry optics was way easier than making GM with production. Okay. So then you shot 2020 carry, uh, factory gun nationals. Yep. And you, and you were fourth. Yep. That that's, that's impressive. Very impressive. It was good. It was a uh, it was a good match. I shot a I shot a really good match there uh, last year. Um, they, it's also a little misleading, I think, because if if you're into the sport, you, you understand kind of all the dynamics. But if you're not, last year, carry optics was paired with production, right? I, I believe mm -hmm. that's right. Yes. So you had a, a lot of the big shooters, you know, the big name guys shooting, you know, it was split up. Whereas this year most of those dudes aren't shooting PCC. So this year you had everyone shooting 
carry well, on. But this year, too, though, the results are skewed because of that. So, right. like, you were 18th this year, but you would have been much higher had all those dudes who normally don't shoot it weren't there. Yep, and that's and that's where it gets skewed. If you're outside the sport, you're like, oh, you finished fourth, and then you finished 18th. Like, yeah, but I don't, I don't think you understand. So last year I was 90% <laughs> yeah. of max, uh, 90% of max at fourth place. This year I was 89% of JJ in 18th place. So it's, it's, you know, obviously I, 18th, I, I should have, you know, I didn't shoot a great match this year. Um, I had a lot of, a lot of things happen, um, that should have been totally in my control. I just didn't control them well, but, uh, I think had I shot a performance like last year, this year, I, you know, it would have been better. I've still not developed enough to be in a contention to win yet, um, yet, but it'll take some more time. Well, and, and that's actually why I brought this up because my, the, there's an actual question here that I'm, uh, I'm talking about this stuff and that is what is your end goal? I mean, are you looking to be a national champion in USPSA carry optics? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not the. Uh, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I, I've heard guys talk about they just love to train, right? So they go to the sport from the camaraderie. They love to train, and that's kind of their, their motivator to get better. Uh, I'm I'm the complete opposite of that. Whereas if there was no major matches, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't train. I, I need something to work towards. Uh, so winning nationals is a goal, and then obviously going uh, to the world shoot is the goal. Okay. Which is just going to take some time. Um, so I'll either I'll either be the best red dot pistol shooter on the planet or I'll die, whichever happens first. <laughs> well, I know which one of those options is mine. <laughs> I mean, that's the goal. I right? got into this game way too late for that. So, yep. well. all right, that's awesome. So, uh, all right, so you want to be uh, world shoot. I'm going to throw a Lanny Basham question at you then. I'm ready. All right. You win nationals. Then what's your goal? Are you done? Are you out of the sport or are you resetting your goals for something else? Well, if I win the U S nationals. Yes. USPSA nationals. Yeah. I mean, then you know, you got to qualify for the world shoot team. So you right. win, win or, or place well for three out of the four Ipsy nationals and USPSA nationals for two years. Uh, so then, you know, one win is good. It's awesome. I'd, I'd celebrate for sure. But uh, it, you know, the next day would be right back to it, trying to prepare for the next one. I think what, if I win the world shoot, then I don't really know what the goal is after that. Uh, probably just to, to do it over and over again. But I got a lot of steps in the road before that happens. Right. I'm, I just bring that up because I've heard other high-level shooters say, you know, they've set a, they would set a goal for themselves. And once they achieved it, they're like, uh, okay, now what do I do? You know, so and that's why I'm just, no, I, I'm always curious. Goal. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty good about, you know, writing down. I'm a big believer in writing down your goals and that kind of stuff because you see them over and over again and read them, right? It, it keeps it more real instead of, you know, if you don't write it down, it's just a dream. If you write it down, it, it can become the goal. So I write all that down and I've got each step that I want. I know. Obviously, I've got performance goals, but more so I've got uh, – so I go to national. this year's a great example, right? I go to Nationals training as much as I did this year, and I, I place 18th. And some of that I could have controlled. If I would have shot my perfect match at the highest of my ability, it still wouldn't have been a win this year. Um, 
uh, you know, maybe let's say 10th. Um, so I still have a lot of steps training wise of, of skill development and, and a mental game before I'm even, I'm, I'm even ready to get there. So those are the goals I'm, I'm really focused on for this year. Um, this year's, you know, for me, it's a lot of movement stuff, footwork and that kind of stuff, which doesn't play a huge role. Uh, obviously I got to get used to this shooting this Glock, but it feels like home. Uh, but just, just developing, you know, incremental improvement. So last year at, I was 90% of max this year. I didn't shoot a great match, um, but I was 90, 93% of max, right? I was 89% JJ, but 90, I think 92 or 93%. So there's improvement there, right? It's slowly creeping up and it, it takes time. Um, so as long as I keep seeing that improvement, that those are the goals that I'm really focused on. And then I'll worry about after nationals, after a national win, uh, after, after a national win. Okay. Yeah. 92 or 93% is, and not shooting your best matches pretty solid. That's definitely yeah, and, improvement. And, again, that, that could be skewed because I don't, I don't know if, if Max shot his best match. Right. Um, right. So you, you don't really know. That's why, that's what makes the sport so interesting is, you know, anybody can beat anybody on any given day. It really, it really depends. Like I said, it, it's not who's the best or who's the fastest or who has the best splits. It's who's the most consistent on the days that matter. Um, yeah, I agree. That's why this is also one of the most frustrating things I've ever, <laughs> I've ever done, too. But. Yeah, that that's what I think is going to make next year's um, open production PCC and limited nationals interesting because it's four days of shooting. So you know they're they're going to have to do it again on a fourth day, which I think is going to make it even more critical. Yep that they're able to maintain that consistency over four days and not three. Yeah, absolutely. You gotta, you know, you gotta hold that together for now another whole day, which each, each stage, I mean, it, it's mentally draining. Like you, you might only shoot five or six stages, but you come off there and you're mentally exhausted. Um, I know like when I get home from training, I'm, I'm, I'm not physically exhausted. It's not really physically that hard, but you're just mentally drained from, you know, planning your stage runs and visualizing and, and all this stuff. It's, it's draining. So keeping that up for, four days at a time. Uh, I think that nationals is like 27 stages or somewhere in that. I mean, that that's yeah. Something lot. like yeah. that. Yeah. Now does yeah. that mean that, argument with your wife? Yeah. Does that, does that mean that now you're going to strategize of like, who's going to sandbag the first day and then <laughs> come back the last three days and just eat it up because the people who ran hard the first three days are now going to be falling behind on the last day. You know, now it becomes a strategy game. In my mind, I think, you know, like you said, running hard for four days is taxing. So how do you strategize yourself so that you don't burn yourself out either in the beginning or in the end? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously I can only speak to how I do it. Um, as far as strategy, it, it's hard to do it. Uh, but, you know, for the first couple of stages, I shoot the way I'm the way I'm used to, right? And then after that, as scores start to populate on practice score, if they're live scoring, you can start to track, like, hey, am I on pace or am I off pace? Do I need to make some adjustments right. from here or there? Um, but until you know some of that kind of information, like even the first couple stages of Nationals, you just have to go out there and, and do what you're trying to do. Uh, and then right. once you get some information, then you may be able to start making adjustments. But most people can't. They don't have the ability or the mental game to be able to use that information to make an adjustment uh, myself included i don't i go out there to shoot you know from the start i'm trying to shoot as many a's as i can as fast as i can right so there's not a whole lot of wiggle room for me 
um, in there. I mean, I can do it faster, but if I do it faster, I can't, I can't guarantee anything hits wise. Um, so even if I see that I'm not on pace with somebody else, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot at this point that I could do about it. So I, I, I don't know if your strategy really, for me, I don't know if my strategy really changes. Right. It, it, it seems like, um, Ben, Ben's, uh, strategy would work very well in the four day match because his thing is always, he shoots fast, but he doesn't do anything risky. So he's very consistent in that regard and he doesn't get that whole, um, we were talking to Phil Strader recently and I mentioned Casey Eusebio. I mean, he'll be 10% above everybody on one stage, but then he'll be 120th on the next stage. Mm -hmm. You know, he's very up and down. Excellent shooter. I love watching him because he is fast. Exciting. You know, yeah, he's very exciting to watch, but he's also very roller coastery, you know? Yep, and that's you know, that, that's that's kind of the game is, is consistency, right? So, yeah. I, like I said, I could I could go out there and shoot every state I've shot at nationals. I could shoot it faster than what I shot it, uh, but I shoot it with the same points as what I shot it faster. I, right. Yeah, right, your score. Your I may be. Yeah, I may be able to hook up and get a couple stage wins out of it, but does that do anything for me in the match? It probably hurts more than it helps me because the ones that I bomb are I'm gonna bomb. Um, so I think I think. Very few people. I've heard Mason Lane talk about it a little bit about kind of having the ability to adjust, and it's not really pushing. It's maybe at the end, you know, of a day or the match, you you see you're a little bit behind, right? So then you can start taking some risks that you normally wouldn't have. Um, I was I was squatted with uh, Matthew Nash. Okay, yeah. And uh, I was talking to him. It was pretty interesting. We were talking about you know risk versus reward, and if you can't do it ten times, ten out of ten times. Right, you just do what you can do on demand every single time, and then that's that's kind of the, the game plan. Um, and, and that was just you know a different way to, to think about it than I have been, which I, I really like. So I'll, I'll be taking that with me uh, this year as well. Right, I'll, there's some time where I'll do some stuff that I can't guarantee I can do that ten at ten times. So I gotcha. So all right, so you shot, um, you've shot at Frostproof. Now you've shot at CMP. Do you have a preference between those two locations Ooh. for nationals? Real quick, Luke. I really feel like we should all guess what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they're they're almost exactly the same distance from me. Um, okay, I think location wise, probably Talladega. Range wise, Frostproof. I just because Talladega only has. They had like eighteen bays, and they, you know, one of them was a vendor bay. Fifteen, yeah, fifteen. So they only had it was eighteen stages total, which to me, right. nationals, right? If if there's area matches out there that are twelve, fourteen stages, and the nationals only four more than that, that's that seems a little low for me. The twenty-seven or whatever stages they're doing out in Colorado this year for the the big nationals, uh, that's that that to me sounds like a nationals level match. That's what I I think they should all be, and he can't do that. They just they can right um which frostproof at least i think both years i shot down there it was 20 21 22 stages so at least it felt like a a big event but when we're only shooting five or six stages a day at, at nationals that for me that's not it yeah i i would i have a tendency to agree with that well and it's interesting because phil said something very similar to that he's like it should be an event 
Like it should, it should be, be a big, big deal, but... and it should be more than what you're used to. Because, like I said, if if you're shooting majors or, or like area matches or even local matches that are the same as nationals, like what makes nationals nationals? Right, and then if when it becomes the only real difference is that all the people are there, if, if, which this year they, I, I will say they did a good job. I thought with the shooting challenges at nationals. Um, it was more difficult shooting wise this year than it has been in the past, uh, at least in the past two years I shot it, which I, I thought was good. Um, so and it felt more like nationals level shooting where they had, they tested strong can shooting. Uh, they had a lot of stuff that was out there further. Uh, you know, they had teetering on extreme with the half Ipsic swingers on I think yeah. age 17. I think I was, I don't remember. Um, that was, you know, you had tough shooting there, which is what a national should be. They should be testing skill, right? It shouldn't just be who can hose these targets faster. That doesn't really tell us who the more skilled person is. This one, I think they did a good job with that. It just needed to be 10 more stages. Yeah, I agree. That that would have made it much nicer. I started uh, up on zone three as well, so. Yep, which was, that was a rough zone. I, You know, Ooh. hindsight being twenty twenty. I wish I would have finished on that or had that the second. I wish I'd have been warmed up for that zone. Cause that yes. A full day of shooting before zone three would have been nice. hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, it, and it was funny because we were there and I was like, man, it's going to be awesome to get these out of the way and be done with them. <laughs> I think I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. I was looking at them going, oh, this is going to be ugly. See, I said the same thing when Dave told me about it. And then now that I've heard another person be like, no, that's no. I get it. Yeah. I feel like I, I understand now. I liked I liked the stages. Uh, aside from the ammo can stage, I wasn't a big fan of. Just I don't, I don't know. It didn't. It wasn't for me. Um, I'm do sure you, there'll be people out there that disagree. But... Do you know Luigi but, Lee? I know who he is. I don't. I don't think I okay. Talk to him. Well, he was he was on uh, my squad, and. As soon as the um, timer went off, he just dropped that can all together, started shooting, and ran down that whole stage just shooting as he went and activated it with his foot and burp, shot everything quick. So it was, uh, it was, I, I've been meaning to, um, it is a procedural for, the shots only on the swingers. The four procedurals, though, right? There's yeah, four procedurals. Yeah, forty. Points, so forty. 40 yeah, it was. And he and he said that at the beginning. He asked him. He said, "What's the penalty?" So he's like forty points down. Okay. And I didn't know what he was going to do, but there were like three or four of us with our cameras already on record when he when the timer went off, and you hear that can yeah. hit, bam on the ground, and he is off like a a rocket. Look at the math. The math works out for that, though. It's not forty points. You know, Larry, um, Larry Talbot. He was. Uh, if you went to the award ceremony, he was the high master PCC shooter. Yeah. He he's a a guy who's local here, and um, well, he and I have talked a bunch of times. So as soon as we were done with that stage, he said, "If I were to shoot it over again, he said I would have done what Luigi did. I would have just dropped." But for him. The difference was trying to shoot the PCC with one hand was yeah. much more difficult. So 
you know, I can see where strategy wise looking back for him, you know, dropping the can and using two hands with the PCC and going probably would have worked out. And I'll have to, I'm trying to get Luigi on. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to get Luigi on. He said he would come on. Uh, he's a little under the weather right now, but holy cow. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. I wonder, I, I would have to, you know, sit down and do the math on that. But I wonder how fast, what time you would have to put up to, to, outrun those 40 points you lose on those swings because i don't remember how many points it was, it was i feel like I mean, for huggy and i that would probably be okay because <laughs> that just means that we're actually going to make shots instead of just we're going to be dropping mics left and right you know i, I feel like usain bolt could outrun the 40 points that, that's just my thought huggy's maybe. not usain bolt <laughs> and i'm not no, usain maybe. bolt's cousin <laughs> in, in my in my mind i'm usain bolt Physically, I'm nowhere even close to it. I'm more like a fat bull. <laughs> you know, we, we all have eyeballs, man. <laughs> it's okay. Nobody here's blind. Oh, man. So, so next year, Carry Optics is a standalone match for Nationals. What do you yep. think about that? <laughs> I, I don't know why you would put the biggest division – a stand, I get why they did a standalone match, right? Because you had the most people there. But why you do it, right? CMP and not put one of the other divisions there instead of the, the fastest growing and the biggest one. What you know, if you have this giant nationals out in uh, Colorado, I don't understand why uh, Carry Optics isn't part of it. However, I would much prefer to drive to Talladega than fly to Colorado to shoot it. So. Right. I'm, I'm That's five, convenient. Five and a half hours from it, so it's fine with me. Uh, but still, you know, it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be what eighteen stages is, is is the most they can do, I would imagine. Right. So that's how yeah. I'll let that. I, yeah, I, it's bittersweet for me. I mean, I'm excited that it's its own match, but I would like to see five or six hundred carry optics shooters there. Um, with like you're saying. Even if they had held it at frostproof, I'd have been good with that. Just because, again, you're at least 21 stages. So, yeah, I think if you held it at frostproof, I don't think you'd get five or six hundred shooters down there. Though. I think there's a Maybe lot not. of people across the country that are tired of, you know, because everyone not on the East Coast has to fly to frostproof, and I don't. Right. I think people are tired of it. Yeah. Especially with Channing gone now. What's that? I said, especially with uh, Shannon Smith being gone now. Right. Frostproof. Right. Now, have you been out to um, Grand Junction to Cameo? I have not. Yeah, me either. I hear it's really nice. I talked to uh, Jim McBurnett. I had to make sure I said his name right. I've been mispronouncing it. Um. He's here in Virginia, but he did a bunch of um, IT stuff at Cameo. Like he wired a lot of those stages and his company did. And uh, he walked me through last year's Virginia State match. He was showing pictures and everything that they're able to do from an IT standpoint, live streaming every bay. Uh, it's just crazy. All the capability of that range. It really is set up for like a huge event like nationals. 
Yeah, see, that'll be pretty cool. That was cool about this year, I thought, uh, with, I guess, Federal sponsoring the, the live streaming stuff and, and them switching bays, right, as, as the squad's getting ready or, or the next shooter's coming up, they switched to somebody who's getting ready to shoot. Uh, you know, I, obviously it wasn't perfect, but it was it was much cooler because in the morning or the afternoon when we weren't shooting, we'd live stream it onto our TV at the Airbnb and we'd watch other people shooting. And that okay. Kind of so that was pretty cool. I, I thought they, they did a, a good job of that. So. Okay. Yeah, I didn't see any of that. I saw the camera set up, obviously, but um, I didn't see actually any of the live streaming. So I'm excited to to see what next year is, especially since I probably won't be going to Cameo for the four days of Nationals. At least I can sit back and watch the live streaming buy, of it. If I buy an open gun between now and then, I might go. But that would be the only way. That's a that's a lot of days off from work and travel and everything else. That's that's a I mean not if you're sick, Dave. <laughs> that's true. I mean, true. I'm just saying. So at what point well, did you just at what point did you decide to start your own training company? Um, so I, I did a little bit of it in Maryland uh before I moved down here and then as I started to compete, mostly just from being in you know, matches and having people like, hey, like I would like to train with you. It's like, oh, okay, well, come on out. And then eventually that gets to a volume where you can't, you know, I can't do it for free and send every day at the range with other people I like to. Um, you know, obviously I, I teach firearms all day, every day at work. So it, I, I love to do it. Um, which if you ever, you know, if, if you have shot a match with me or ever do, and guys ask me questions and stuff like that all the time, and I, and I like standing there, I'll talk about stage plans and, you know, whatever, whatever they want to talk about. Um, but when it got to a point where I was, you know, Hey, I'm relatively good at this. I was a GM and carry out the exam production. Um, and then, you know, after last year, I think I could do this, the same, essentially the same thing I'm doing now for DHS on my own, uh, which is the direction I'm, I'm trying to go here in the future is, is eventually would be my goal is to leave DHS and just teach for me, travel around. Um, okay. We'll see. Uh Nice. So it's uh what Griffith Shooting Solutions, correct? Yep. So what all right now, like what are all the different types of courses that you teach? So most uh right now I'm doing two day competition classes. Um kind of build to people that understand, you know, that they're they're not new to shooting. So they compete a little bit. They understand the game, kind of the rule set and that kind of stuff. Um, and then how do I, you know, if I'm a C class, how do I get to B class or A class? Or how do I perform better at, at matches and that kind of stuff? Um, so there, I teach a two-day competition class. And then I'm currently making – so I, I run – or I don't run, but I uh, I teach mo a lot of our red dot stuff where I work for the agency that are switching to red dots. So I'm developing a red dot pistol course just because that's – you know that everybody wants that right now, um, and then we'll kind of see what moves forward. But more along the lines of, I guess, performance shooting would be the term. Right? Not, I'm not really in the business of doing basic shooters, uh, just because that's you know I'm doing that full time all week, every week right now. <laughs> I don't want to do that on my weekends. Okay. And do you? I mean, so if you were to, when you do get to the point 
where you branch off on your own, self-employed, you're doing all of that. Do you plan on doing more than just the competition side of shooting while you teach? Yeah, I mean, as, as far as what I'm teaching? Yes. Yeah, so I, I think for me, um, you know, I, I love teaching the competition stuff because I, it, it's easy for me to watch a shooter, you know, shoot a stage or shoot a drill or whatever and kind of pick out, hey, these are things like these. Are, this is your lowest hanging fruit. This is what you need to work on, um, especially in the competition world, right? So if you're shooting all out at a decent pace and, and you're running and stopping in every position, like, hey, I you know, maybe blend those positions together, that kind of stuff. It, it's easy for me to see that. Uh, but I also understand that the competition community is relatively small and the instruction staff is, it's saturated. Um, so until you have five or six national titles under your belt or world shoot, right, people are going to go to the people who do, uh, which, which is fine. Uh, but I, I think for me, I'm going to try and kind of gear more towards uh, like, performance shooting for, for regular people and, and a lot of law enforcement just because that's the field that I've been in for so long. Because um, I, I can see it even, and I, I say this all the time, I would say this to, to the people that, that I've taught, but uh, the best cops that most people know, now there's always outliers, but the best cops, the best shooting cops that we know, uh, usually when they come out and compete, they fall somewhere in the middle of C class, right? Uh, and that, that, that just is what it is. Uh, and understand that their their whole job isn't shooting, right? They have a ton of other stuff that they have to be good at. But the shooting, I think, should be as a community, as LA community, should be better. So how do you get it better? Well, the current model of training that we're on and we've been on for 20 years in the community is something's got to change. So if we start bringing performance shooting or, or competitive uh, principles to the LA world where we, where we break down skills, we focus on efficiency and, and start getting people sped up in just the shooting part of it and then take that sped up shooting and then put it back into the whatever tactics an agency is running think about how much more capable that officer is and that's kind of where i'm going to go uh moving forward or kind of direct my attention is, is trying to bring that training to officers because there's not a whole lot of people kind of blending practical shooting and the the tactical the le military mostly le worlds um, there are guys out there there's a couple guys doing it but i mean by and large you have a ton of cops that you know that they come to a match the first time and see any any gm shoot or any m class dude shooting they're like oh my god i didn't know that was possible like yeah, there's a lot of guys out there that can do this stuff which what you can do behind a gun is pretty credible if somebody shows you right and and i can see too where it would be cheaper for a department to bring you in for a week and train people than it is to send their people out to get training other places. So I can see where that's a big, big market for you. Yep. And then, you know, the way LE typically works is they'll send you know, a department with 200 officers. Isn't going to send every officer. They're going to send their, their firearms instructors. Right. To, to let's say my training, you, you bring these concepts to them. They, they, they see, they see on a timer, a target that it works. So it's not, teaching out a theory it's right like this is the technique this is how you do it and here's proof that it's better than what you're currently doing because uh, that's you really got to change the mindset of, of some of this there's a, still a rift between the tactical community and competition it, it's shrinking uh, but it is still there but i think if you show them in metrics the target the timer there's no 
data anymore, right? It's, I'm not teaching out a theory. I'm telling you, this is how you do this faster. And here's proof that this is in fact faster and more accurate if you do it this way. Um, that, that's sorely missing in the LA community. Science, right? Yeah, science. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> science and math and numbers and all this. Yeah, stuff. it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, there was something else. I'm trying to remember now what it was on your website here. Let me. No, I can't. Why he's remember. looking for this question? I have a question for you. Have there you, you shot? I know you say you shot production, but they, have you ever competed with your service weapon in competition? Nope, I have not. I uh, when I the police agency I was with in Maryland carried the MP40 cows. Okay which didn't really fit in any division well. Uh, so uh, no, which I, I like the, the MFEs, um, not enough to go buy one and compete with it, but I liked them, but no. Gotcha. All right. That's Dave's mini horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of them. Yeah. I see that. That's the mini, mini oh. horse. Huh. My son's got a pet lizard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that what that is? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Okay. Oh my goodness! Got, Somebody's wanting attention. Fish, but he's not in here. <laughs> I don't remember now what it was. I uh, I was going to have a question for you about your. Was it the performance website. versus the competition class? Um, I'm trying to remember now. I mean, I I see that on here, and maybe that's what it was, but I don't recall now. Okay. Yeah. But I mean that that we'll go with that. I mean, what is the difference between the performance and competition? So, uh, so my competition class, we we start off, we shoot a, a stage cold, just so I can evaluate all the shooters. Uh, then we go in kind of like fundamental shooting stuff um, for like half a day, and then we start getting into like competition skills, right? So like target transitions is a big part of it. We start working into like movement skills. Uh, we talk about stage planning and mental management and all that kind of stuff, right? Everything that kind of goes into the sport of shooting USPSA. Um, for performance shooting is more along the lines of what I'm trying to take out to the LE community about like, so hey, you, you're an officer, you know how to draw your gun, you know how to reload your gun, you know how to hit pretty much what you're aiming at work through malfunction and all that stuff now how do we do all that stuff at a level that is higher right so like you can shoot and move but can you shoot and move at the pace you need to move at and still shoot like at the pace that you want to shoot at if you were actually engaged with somebody something like that um just teaching everything the performance class is, is based on teaching everything all the skills that we already do just how to do them at, at the highest level of whatever you're capable of right so like you come to me Hey, my draw to first shot at 70 yards is typically around 1.5 seconds. All right, well, at the end of the two days, let's try and have you down at, at 90 draw to first shot, right? So how beneficial is that for the officer in, in the street to put their draw time down by 25% or 50% when most engagements are real short, right? That that first round time really starts to matter, uh, you know, and then, and then how do we – without going too far into it, so LE across the nation has about 30% hit rate. Between 7 out of 10 bullets, Mr. Target, on average, right? Um so our typical training model is, you know, sights and trigger, put sights on the target, press the trigger at a pace that's not fast. It's not slow. It, it's kind of, it's kind of just a pace that isn't really anything in either direction, but what happens in an actual LA gunfight? Well, the officer draws the gun as fast as they can. 
they run the trigger as fast as they can, whether they can control it or not. Right. And that's why right. we have a 30% hit rate because they're looking at the target. They're running the gun as hard as they can possibly run it, but no one showed them how to control that. Now, is it controllable? Well, I think we all agree that is because USPSA competitors do it every weekend, right? I'm going to go out and shoot a match tomorrow and I'm going to do just that. Mm-hmm. So it's possible. We just have to teach people how to do it. And that's where the big disconnect has been. Is, is no one's, again, there's a couple guys out there doing it, but no one's really brought that to the LE market and, and sold it in a way to where, like, hey, you're an okay shooter, but you can be really awesome. And then if you apply this awesome shooting back to your tactics, room clearing or traffic stops, whatever it is, just think about the capability that you have now where you can draw the gun at point eighty, break that first round, and then shoot 16 splits or 18 splits after that. Think about how much more proficient that is and how much uh, safer you are as an officer. Plus not sending, you know, 9mm bullets at 1,100 feet per second out into to the world with no accountability. Right? So it's just making everybody more capable. And that's what the performance – uh, shooting class is all about is, is kind of bringing that capability of every little detail of shooting a handgun uh, up to, to whatever the highest level is possible and then giving them a training plan after I leave right so you're only going to get so good in two days with anybody so what do you do after I leave do you just go back to what you were doing well you, know, you can but that doesn't really help anybody right so having a plan of like hey this is your low-hanging fruit the, this is how I would dry fire that this is how I would lie fire that and if you stick with it for a while now you have this really proficient officer behind the gun, um, you know, prepared for whatever, whatever happens. So is your performance pistol then primarily going to be for law enforcement? For, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's primarily for law enforcement. That's what I'm going to try and, and, and kind of gear it towards. Um, but you know, the same, the same stuff can be applied to just a normal person carrying a gun, right? The same, the, the same problems occur where, if they're faced with some kind of encounter, they're going to draw the gun as fast as they can. They're going to run trigger as hard as they can. Again, whether they can control that or not is, is irrelevant. That's what's going to happen. So how do we get people to control that, right? So really for anyone anyone uh, carrying a gun that already has a level of ability. Okay. Right. They already have the basics, and you're just trying to make them a little bit more proficient with that. But that, that yep. again goes back to, you know, if I'm a – if I'm a police chief or a sheriff of a department, you know, again, I think I'd rather bring you in and train. You might be training my guys plus a couple of other areas around us, but also being able to, you know, teach them how they can use their facilities best to train their people. I feel like is probably another aspect that, that can be improved upon as well. Yep. And that's, you know, that's a big key part that's missing is, is how to train in the first place, right? Because we get yeah. a lot of agencies out there and people too, they go out and shoot a course of fire once a quarter, 60 rounds or 50 rounds, whatever it is. And that's their training for the year. Um, but that's not, that's not training, right? So you have to actually break skills down and work them individually, independent of other skills and develop them and then put them back into that big picture. Um, right. And that's not well understood across the board. All right. Well, that's all I have, Sean. You guys have anything? I did, but he actually answered because I wrote down <laughs> like, "Oh, what's the difference for your training between competition and like everyday care or something like that?" But I don't. 
I, you answered it, so now I don't have a question. <laughs> yes. So, th I mean, thank you for answering my future question now. But yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, what I, I also had. have. A, so, a special skill called telepathy. I knew it was coming, so I just figured I'd answer. It. <laughs> and listen, I appreciate it because you know now I don't have a weird way to. Like, uh, but so yeah, no, that's that's actually what I had. Oh, not true. Uh, uh, hold on, I do have one more. Um, this is actually more of a statement than anything else. Uh, I feel like we should uh, give you the nickname RMR because uh, you're rugged and durable, especially with that beard. Because <laughs> we were talking about the RMR and you were like, oh, because it's really rugged and durable. And I'm like, I feel like that should be your nickname. I think he's frozen. I, I think he's he frozen because it's such a good nickname. Yeah, I was like, yeah. He's like, he's like, I'm out. I'm out. No. Oh. Or pretending to be frozen because he doesn't want to, you know, reply. But either way, I think it's a dope nickname. <laughs> and if he comes back ever again after that, maybe that's what we'll call him. Yeah, uh, he's gonna be like, yeah, nope, frozen again. I don't care. Oh. I'm calling from now on. RMR. <laughs> that is funny. Don't have that an amazing is. beard, you won't get a dope nickname. Uh, not TM, by the way, not sponsored. Just put that out there. Right. But they oh, can yeah, if they that, want. Like, I can't handle this. Yeah, thing. I'm out. I'm out. Right, right, that right. just made it awkward. <laughs> this you got real uncomfortable. You talk about me, and look, you made it awkward. Yeah. He's like, I'm out. <laughs> hey, Huggy, somebody else had to take the torch from you. Right, right. That's, uh, oh, that's good. goodness. I'm glad you did. <laughs> You're welcome. Yes. But yeah. That is no, hysterical. He actually answered my question about training because that was really what I had. But yeah. Yeah. So, Huggy, you don't get a question. Sorry, man. Uh, I'm, I'm good. I actually, I actually asked my question about uh, did he use a service rifle? I mean, a service rifle, service weapon during uh, competition at any time. And he answered that. So, um, that was good. So I, I, it was good. Well, hopefully he comes back. <laughs> I, I, I think he's like, I'm done, dude. Will you come up with a nickname for me? He's like, I'm out. That's it. That's it. Listen, man, don't look like Grizzly Adams with an amazing beard. <laughs> not my oh beard. goodness! If, if you had to call him Grizzly or something like that, he'd probably be still around. But he was like, he's RMR, the one that was talking about RMR. <laughs> yeah, he's a he. Oh. Here he comes. He's <laughs> just even like, you know what? He was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, so he had to take a deep breath. He's like, oh, he had really? to collect himself after that amazing uh, nickname. <laughs> yeah, that was a whole thing. Did, I didn't even did hear you... it. Oh, you didn't <laughs> see? You don't want you don't want to hear it. Talk you about it all over through. again. I, I was saying, RMR and okay, yeah, RMR because it's rugged and durable. Like your beard. <laughs> See, Huggy, you're making me feel guilty. <laughs> we were we were laughing, saying that uh, Leo he made it so really hated it. uncomfortable. You just like I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, oh, he pretended to freeze. Uh oh. I'm gonna stop talking. I'm gonna mute myself. <laughs> Well, Sean, that's that's all we had. The other, the only other question Chris had, you'd already answered, which was, had you used your um, service pistol in a competition? Um, so, is there anything 
you'd like to add or plug before we go? Uh, no, I mean, I think we pretty much hit everything. This was fun. Yeah, we we appreciate you coming on. It was fun. Hopefully, I'll see yeah, you. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me. Hopefully, I'll see you down at CMP come early September. Well, make I'll sure definitely be at that one. I'm hoping to come up to Area Eight. Okay. I'll see you up there. All right. Make sure you push yeah, your, just uh, make sure that your shirt when you come up says RMR on it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we may I'm have to have send them one. <laughs> There you I mean, go. Listen, if it doesn't happen, I don't even know if you've ever seen a fat kid cry, but it's not pretty. So if yeah. anybody's interested in uh, getting any type of uh, training with you, where would they go? Uh, let, let the people listeners know where they can go to try to, if they need to get lessons or training with you. Yeah. If you, uh, uh, www.griffithshootingsolutions.com um, and then there's a class description page and there's also a class register uh, registration page uh, so the way I do it right now is if like say you want to have a class with me you, you go in there you uh, click on the host a class that'll populate an email you just fill in where at and what you know kind of your time frame um, and then we can set that up or on the class registration page if I already have classes like I have one next month in Savannah uh, down here in Georgia. I think I have one spot left for that one. Uh, if you just click on that, it'll take you right to the registration for the for that specific class. Is it near Paula Dean's restaurant? Because I'm going there to eat during lunchtime, right? <laughs> you can go wherever you want during lunchtime, as long as you're back by <laughs> <Okay>. lunch. <laughs> you can't give him too much we time. He won't come back. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's all I have. So I thank you very much for coming on. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you guys hanging out with me for a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Yep. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. Mm -hmm.